0: Well, let us please turn in our Bibles today to the book of Hebrews. We're continuing on here in Hebrews chapter 6. And um, we're going to spend a lot of time with one of the great patriarchs of the faith today, Abraham. So, beloved, let us stand as we hear the reading of God's word. And uh, as we believe that this is God's inerrant and inspired and infallible word. So we stand just to honor the Word of God, and uh, we we would not treat it as something common, but as the very Word of God to us. Hear now the Word of the Lord in chapter six, and I'm going to begin reading in verse one, just verse one, and then skip down to verse 11. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Now down to verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises And in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for that hope that you have given to us and for the reasons that we know it is so sure. We thank you, Lord, now for your word. We pray that you will bless us as we read it together, as we study it together. Lord, as it is preached, thank you that you have ordained that ministry of the preaching of your word uh, to help us to grow in our faith. And so now, Lord, may we uh, listen and hear your word uh, as we study it together. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide through it. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Please be seated. The one thing that Christians have, one of the things I should say that Christians have, that the world does not have, beloved, is assurance of the hope that we have. We have the hope uh, that God has given to us, but not just, uh, you know, so many people in the world will say, well, I have hope, and they do. They have hopes, and they have dreams, but Christians have the assurance of the hope. We have a peace that the world does not have. We have a joy that the world does not have as God's children. And beloved, we have a hope that the world does not know and have. As Christians, we have a, the, the hope of two main things. Let me boil it down to that. We have the hope, first of all, that our sins have been paid for and forgiven by God, that we will not be held accountable for our sins, that our sins have been pardoned And therefore, the pollution of our sins, the very acts of our sins that we committed, as well as the guilt that we also endured, has been removed. So we have that as our hope. And then we also have the hope of the future glory that God is preparing for all those who are his, which he will give us in heaven. We have the hope of eternal life with God, don't we? And this hope is a sure hope, as I said a moment ago. It is sure because we have a reason to believe these things have all been done for us and indeed will be ours. This was what the apostle, writing to the Hebrews, wanted for these Hebrew believers that he loved and he cared for there. And and so he wants them to have this sure hope. Look with me again at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The word here translated, the full assurance, means the full persuasion. And it refers to a state of mind where there is no doubt, a state of mind where there is the fullest conviction. The apostle admonished the Hebrews here to be diligent, to mature in the faith, in the understanding of the Word of God, and to hold to it only, to hold to it tenaciously, so that they would have this full assurance of their hope, again, of the pardon of their sins and of eternal life. A few weeks ago, we learned that assurance of hope is something that the Holy Spirit, for us to have assurance of hope, and you can put in there assurance of salvation, that we know that we are the Lord's, that we know that he has saved us, but the hope, again, that our sins are, forgi- are forgiven and the hope of, God, of what God has promised us, he will give to us in eternal life. These things are something that the Holy Spirit gives to us. They're not something that just falls out of the sky. No, God's Spirit himself gives this to us. And we have learned that assurance of hope or assurance of our salvation is the result of three things that the Holy Spirit does for us when we are born again or we are born from above, when God saves us, let's just say it that way. And those three things that the, the Holy Spirit does for us is justification and adoption and sanctification Now, when we think of those first two, justification and adoption, we know them by faith. We believe that we are justified and adopted into God's family because the Bible tells us that that is the case. The Holy Spirit then confirms that in our hearts, that that is the case. But now, sanctification is a little different, isn't it? Sanctification is something that we really experience and we actually see the result of because the change of in our lives. Let's remember what sanctification is. And if you'll take the uh, sermon helps that you have there in bulletin, let's remember what it is. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Now if those things are taking place in your life, do you think you're going to notice them? Are you going to be able to look at what your life was before, and now all of a sudden, something new is taking place here. And what is that? We are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness, you see, well, my friends, when the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, we see these changes begin, and they slowly uh, be- become more and more in our lives, and the more that we see those changes happening in our lives, you know what, the more we grow in the assurance of our hope, okay? Okay? Remember, the Apostle John was able to say in 1 John 2, verse 3, and I have it there for you, and by this we know that we have come to know him. See, he's talking about assurance there, isn't he? If we keep his commandments. The result of sanctification is that we strive to keep God's commandments, to live in the ways God has called us to live, to live according to his word, That's the result of sanctification, you see. And because God has made us his children, and we love him, and we thank him, and we want to do those things. And then our assurance of our hope grows, my friends. A few weeks ago, I shared with you a quote from Thomas Watson, who put it this way. He said this, Sanctification is the seed. Assurance is the flower which grows out of it. Assurance is a consequence of sanctification. See how that works? So the Word of God here in in Hebrews 6 is telling us that we need to be diligent to know the Word of God, to hold to the Word of God, to press on to maturity in the sound teaching of the Word of God. And so this means that we're going to read it. We're going to know it. We're going to seek to know it. We're going to memorize it when we can. We're going to hear it preached and taught uh, at every opportunity where we know that it is going to be faithfully uh, preached and taught and expounded. And then we embrace it as truth and we live by it and we love it. And then, beloved, finally we share it with others at every opportunity because it is so dear to us and the benefit you will receive as you do these things is that you will grow in the assurance of your hope that's how we grow in the assurance of our hope you see now there's another thing that will result in us growing in the assurance of our hope and that is told to us here in verse 14 look what he said in verse 4 in verse uh, thir- uh, 12 excuse me I'm getting ahead of myself in verse 12 he says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the second thing that he mentions here that helps us to grow in the assurance of our hope is that we are being imitators of those people that we meet in the word of God, those patriarchs and those saints of the scriptures who, live, who did two things. They lived by faith, and they had patience, both of those things, and they received the promise of eternal life. We imitate them, right? Just reading the positive, look again at verse 12. So, he says, that you be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises Now, I believe the apostle here is referring to the patriarchs of old when he is talking about imitating those who had faith and patience. And he's going to really talk a lot about those patriarchs of old in in chapter 11 when we get there. But, beloved, as we imitate those people, we are going to grow in the assurance of our hope. Okay, And now he goes on. The author gives us, as he goes on, the author gives us the greatest example, I think, of one man in history, of the one man in history of the world who we should imitate, for sure, and that is Abraham. Okay, let's look with me at verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Abraham is such an important model for us, beloved, of one that we are to imitate. He is so important that he is called the father of the faith or the father of the faithful. Abraham. Look with me at Galatians 3, if you have it on your sermon helps. And so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. See, that's what each one of us must do. We must believe God, and it is our faith that reckons us righteous. Not our works, not all the things we might do for God. It is our faith. And so look, so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So that verse doesn't actually call Abraham the father of the faithful, but it tells us that we are sons of Abraham. That makes him our father, doesn't it? Because of the faith that Abraham had, God gave him the promises. He gave him the promise that he would make him the father of many, many people. Two main promises. The father of many people and a land for them to give, to be living in. Paul called Abraham our father in Romans 4.16. Look. Here at 4.16, For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There it is, right? This is why he is so important, my friends, as it calls him the father of us all. So the author says here in verse 13, going back to Hebrews 6:13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you, and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Abraham is a great example beloved to us of a man who had the promises of God, and then he had faith and patience regarding those promises of God. His life, Abraham's life, is perhaps the best example of faith in action. As, remember what he did, he left the home, his home where he had lived for the first 75 years of his life, and he obeyed God to leave everything and go to the land that God would show him. And he stepped out in faith, didn't he, to go to the promised land of Canaan. And then we think about Abraham. He finally had his first descendant uh, 25 years later, at the age of 100 years old, with his wife herself being 90 and well past the age of bearing children. And then when God tested him, he again demonstrated his faith in God and God's word in that he was willing to obey God's command to offer up his son as a sacrifice because that's what God told him he wanted him to do. Abraham is so important to us, beloved, because we can so clearly see what faith is in Abraham. Faith is an intangible thing. Intangible means you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you know, you can't see it with your eyes. None of our senses can can apprehend it, if that's the right word. I don't know. It's an intangible thing, and no one can see your faith unless you demonstrate it, right? Abraham didn't just go around saying that he had faith in God, my friends. He proved it by doing what God told him to do. That's how he did it. Each one of us who put our faith in God must also step out and live by faith as Abraham did. We have to demonstrate our faith. A gentleman by the name of Carl Broberg said it very well. Look what he said in this little quote I have for you on your sermon helps there. He said, We all must step out in faith to our promised land, As he did, making our leap and bear fruit for God and even sacrifice what we love most in life for God if he wills. Abraham is the friend of God for us to emulate. I really appreciate that idea that each one of us have to do what God tells us to do. As Abraham had to step out... uh, to the promised land, we have to step out, too, to do what God tells us to do. And here the apostle had a specific promise in mind that he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 6 that God had given to Abraham, which Abraham believed, and he demonstrated his faith in doing. And this specific promise is now here in verse 14, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. The quotation the apostle used here comes most directly from Genesis 22. Would you all turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22? We're going to, we're going to spend quite a bit of time here in Genesis. And so let's take a look at this. Where the, where the apostle is quoting from is here in Genesis 22. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. And 17. So listen now to what it says. Then the angel, I'll look, let's say verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now listen to the promise I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemy. Beloved, this is, the, in, the, the, it, this is in the context of when God commanded Abraham to, to sacrifice his dear son, who he had waited for 25 years for. We who know the story know that God was only testing Abraham. Abraham when he told him to take his son to make a sacrifice. he God does not call people to ever sacrifice a child. That is, t- that is totally pagan. But in this case here, Abraham understood that this was what God called him to do. But again, God was only testing him. We understand that. And I think that This test was for us, for our benefit, who are the children of Abraham by faith. Because God knew that Abraham would trust him to the uttermost, even God didn't have to test Abraham's in his faith. In a way, he did. He did test him in his faith. But he knew. He knew what Abraham was going to do. Even in this case, but Abraham, like us, had to live out his faith in real time. And we have the benefit of seeing what real faith in God looks like as we look at what Abraham was willing to do to the extent at which he was willing to obey God. When Abraham prepared everything and took his son to that place that he was going to sacrifice him, it was Mount Moriah, okay? What was... what. I ask this question, what was it that Abraham trusted in? Was he just obeying God, you know, to go do what God said? Or was he trusting in God for something? And I submit to you, he was. He trusted in God to fulfill his former promises to him. What God had already promised to him. When God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham was trusting in God's previous promise that he would give him many, many descendants and that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth or the stars in the heavens. And so Abraham was trusting that God would raise Isaac up. If God was calling him to to sacrifice his son, God was trusting Excuse me Abraham was trusting that God would raise him up Okay If we had time we would look at uh, the the scripture when Abraham goes up to the to, to he has his servants with him and when he goes up on that mount to actually just take his son with him he says I he says to his ser- servants you all wait here and I and the lad will return So he believed that God would raise him up. He trusted that God would do the impossible, my friends. And that's something that we have to trust also, that God will do the impossible. Remember, Abraham was 75 years old when he received God's promise. I want to show you uh, kind of the history here. He was 75 years old when he heard God's promise that he would make him into a great nation and he would take him to a land that he would give to him. God promised Abraham, his promises begin back in Genesis 12. So turn back to Genesis 12. Now here's the first promise in verse 1 of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. When someone tells you, if someone were to tell you that he is going to make you into a great nation, let's say if God were to tell you he's going to make you into a great nation, that means he's going to give you descendants. Right? I mean, that's the only way that Abraham, God could make Abraham a great nation. I will make you a great nation. Then God appeared to Abraham at a place called Shechem. And once again, there was uh, the promise of an offspring and of a land that is given to him. Look down at verse 6 of chapter 12. Abram passed through the land. So Abram has done what God said, he picks up everything and he and he's moving along. He's, and it says Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Mamre. Now the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, "To your descendants I will give you this land." And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. You see God once again gave him the promise of descendants and then after many years Abraham still had had not even one descendant and so Abraham began to think that he might need to help God out and so he suggested to God that God make his faithful servant Elazar of Damascus as he is called his heir but God said no that's not how I'm going to give you descendants, Abraham. Again, the child, the children he gives him the promise would still come from him and be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let's look at Genesis 15. And we are here in verse 5, okay? And he took him outside and he said, "Now look towards the heavens, and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. That was God's answer to him, you see. So, my friends, when Abraham was 86 years old, a descendant was born to him. His name was Ishmael. Look look with me at chapter 16 and verse 16. We see Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. But you will remember, once again, Abraham and his wife Sarah had taken the matter of a descendant into their own hands. They did not trust God as they should have, and they thought that they could help God out. But remember, if you all know anything about Ishmael, you know that what they did brought great problems to them, And it brought great problems to their whole uh, descendants, didn't it? But it was then, my friends, that God told Abraham that a son by the name of Isaac would actually be his heir, would come from his wife, and would be the fulfillment of the covenant. Look with me at at, uh, Genesis 17. And let's go to verse 20. For as Ishmael, he says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But now listen, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you, At this season next year Isaac hadn't even been born yet and yet God identifies him I will bless you through the descendant that Sarah will bear bear to you finally we read in Genesis 21 5 look over to Genesis 21 verse 5 now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So you all see, Abraham had to wait all those years for the fulfillment of God's promises. But he had faith. As we see, it wasn't a perfect faith, was it? Is your faith perfect? I see everyone here shaking their head no. Abraham's faith wasn't perfect, but he had faith. He continued to have faith in God. And so we are back to God's oath to Abraham, which he made to him on the occasion when God tested him by telling him to sacrifice his son to Isaac. And when Abraham passed that test in being willing to trust God, my friends, for all the previous promises, see, I wanted to take you through all the times that God gave him the promise of descendants before this, because that's what Abraham was trusting God for when he was able to take his son up that mountain, you see. God rewarded his faith by once again, after this, reiterating his promise that Abraham would indeed be blessed with a multitude of descendants. And so this is what we see in Genesis 22 and verse 17. Look with me there. In verse, Actually, beginning in verse 16. And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. But I want us to remember what we also know from Scripture in Hebrews eleven thirty nine. There we read this, And all these, including Abraham and all the others that it speaks of, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So here we see Abraham and all the other heroes of the faith lived by faith, and they hoped for the coming of the Christ. But they were not given the privilege of seeing the fulfillment of that promises. But these recipients that are receiving the book of Hebrews here, they had seen the fulfillment. They had seen the coming of Christ. It's it's interesting that their ancestors had to live by faith, even a greater faith than they had because they hadn't seen Christ come yet. But now it was their turn. It was the turn of these Hebrews to live by faith. To live by faith requires all of us to be willing to sacrifice what we love most in this world. Think with me of what it says in Matthew 10. Look here. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. We must love God, beloved, and trust God. What God has said more than anything else. This is what faith is. Abraham made many sacrifices, you know. He made many sacrifices. Abraham sacrificed much when he left the land that he was raised in and he was willing to go to that land that he had never seen but when he did what he demonstrated what he did when he demonstrated his faith in in, uh, taking his son up that mountain for that sacrifice this was the ultimate example of being willing to sacrifice what he loved most in life you see It's the ultimate example of what it means to live by faith. Abraham waited all those years, and yet God, and yet uh, he trusted God. Let's go back to Genesis 22 for a moment. And let's read just a little bit of this account. So in verse 9, go look with me at verse 9 in Genesis 22. And then they came to the place where God had told him, and Abraham built an altar, and there arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And then God spoke again to Abraham through his messenger. Look what he says in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the land, the gates of their enemies. I want you to notice something here, beloved. God didn't just tell Abraham again that he was going to bless him with descendants and a land here. This time he swore he was going to do this. I, I showed you many other examples of places, excuse me, uh, earlier where God told him that he was going to do this, but this time he swore that he was going to do this. Again in verse 16 we read this, he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. The author of to the Hebrews made it a big point here to talk about the significance of God's swearing an oath. Why did God do this? Why did he swear to do this? Not just tell Abraham. I think it is because God did what we as human beings do when we want to make a person that we're speaking to believe us as much as we can make them believe us. In a way, we could say it this way, God adapted himself to the way of men here so that he relates to, so we would have something to relate to, so that Abraham would have something to relate to. The the writer of Hebrews even says that this was the case, going back to Hebrews uh, 6, and listen what he says in verse 16. Uh, In verse 16, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. See, this is what we do, isn't it? When we really want somebody to to know that we mean what we are saying, is we swear that this is the case as people this is what we do when we want to show that we are fully committed to what we are saying we take an oath think of the marriage covenant my friends this is why when we enter into holy marriage we take oaths you see and it became a common thing for people to swear by something greater than themselves in those days in order to show that they meant what they promised. A commentary by Dr. Constables was his name said this, When a person wants to end an argument, one way to do so is to appeal to a higher authority with an oath. For example, some people do this by saying, I am telling the truth, so help me God. We've heard people say that, or maybe we've said it ourselves, right? And so God accommodates Abraham here by reiterating his promise, not just giving his, not just telling him what he's going to do, but then confirming it with an oath. And we see that God did this on other occasions. God doesn't enter into very many oaths, but he does it in some occasions. Let me show you some examples of this. Look at your, your sermon helps, and you'll see in Isaiah 45. God says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and it will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. You can take that to the bank, my friends, that every knee is going to bow before God. Um, Why? Because God said so. But why else? Because God swore to help us understand even more so. Look with me at Isaiah 54. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. See, God does, he gives us uh, uh, um, occasions where he says he swore something to confirm what he is saying to us. We've been already studying in Psalm 95 on other occasions here in Hebrews. Remember, therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. God took an oath, my friends, because this is what man does. This is what man did, and this is what man does. So to accommodate himself to the ways of man and to give Abraham the fullest assurance that he had promised, what he promised is true here, he swore, he swore. And again, those that promise in Genesis. I think God went to this extreme because he knew that what he was promising Abraham was going to take centuries to be fulfilled. That's why he went to this extreme. And in fact, Abraham would never see the fulfillment of it. God says, your descendants are going to be like this, the, the, the stars in the heavens. No, my friends, you know, when Abraham died at, I believe, 175 years old. I believe that was the age. He died with one covenant son, Isaac, and one covenant grandson, Jacob. That's all he died with. And so God, I think, gave him this promise because God knew that this was going to take centuries to fulfill. Again, let us remember, everything that God says, every word of God is truth, my friends. So there's no question uh, about that. God doesn't have to swear an oath about anything. But again, he swore these things to Abraham to help him keep living by faith. For us doubting human beings, when the fulfilling of a promise takes time, it needs a little help, doesn't it, in order to ward off doubt. And at that point in time, Abraham could only see the fulfillment of the promise in that one son, Isaac. But he still would live by faith for another 60 years. After Isaac was born, Abraham lived 60 more years. Most of you aren't even 60 years old yet, OK? I can say I am. and A few of us can say we are. And that's some. Um, and therefore, God swore an oath. And that oath assured Abraham that God would keep his word in spite of the years of waiting that were in store for him and the other recipients of that promise. Why did uh, the apostle now use Abraham here as an example to the Hebrew believers? Well, I think, again, this Dr. Constable said it very well. Would you just kind of follow along as I read that uh, in your sermon helps? He said, the writer was calling his readers to do what God called Abraham to do, When he instructed him to go to mount moriah they too needed to continue to trust and obey as they had done in the past even though it looked as though uh, perseverance would result in tragedy having patiently waited and remained steadfast in the face of trying circumstances abraham qualified to receive everything god wanted to give to him So I think the author here uses Abraham because Abraham was such a great example of a man who had an endearing faith in God's word and promises even in the most difficult um, circumstances. And he used Abraham as his example, beloved, because God calls these Hebrew believers here now and he calls us as well to have this kind of faith, an endearing faith, with patience. So let me just ask this last question. What was it about Abraham that we should imitate? Well, we should imitate him in that we, too, live by faith in what God has said and he has promised. And in that we, too, must not just say that we have faith, but we must demonstrate that we have faith in that we must trust that God will fulfill every promise that he has ever given, and in that we must trust that God can do the impossible. We have to trust that God can do the impossible if that's what it will take to do what he has promised. That's going to require us to to do often when we think about that, God has promised that He's going to raise these bodies up unto everlasting life, we have to know that God can do the impossible, don't we? Because this body's either going to have returned to dust or ashes, one or the other, unless the Lord comes while it's still breathing oxygen. So we too have to trust that God will do the impossible if that's what it takes. To fulfill his promises and finally beloved we need to be god's people who never tire of living by faith in what god has promised and again for us that would be for the pardoning of our sins and for the union and communion that god is preparing for us to have with him in heaven for all of eternity Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word. And we know that it is sure, every word of God. But Lord, we thank you that at times you even give us more so that we will trust in you through difficult circumstances. And we do live in Difficult circumstances in this world, in this life. And so now, Lord, help us to imitate Abraham. To do these things as we have studied them out. For this very purpose, Lord, that we too might be a people who live by faith in you. In all of your word, in all that you have promised. So we give you thanks and we give you praise now. In Jesus' name, amen.